Last week I uh, taught about sin and the radical corruption is caused within the core of mankind and how Jesus Christ can give us a new core and forgive sin. The Bible's explanation of the sin disease in mankind explains how educated, rational, loving people can bring forth cruelty, violence, and hatred. It is a partial explanation for the evil in this world. And today, I would like to bring out more of the Bible's explanation of evil. And uh, today, uh, as always, and I, I'm saying this on behalf of those who are listening to our, our podcast, um, I'm sorry, uh, a lot of what I say, actually, half of the message is on these screens that are going up. We kind of do the CNN style here, and so I'm talking, and then the other half of the message is right behind with the scriptures on the screen. So uh, I know sometimes I may say statements, and, and people might be listening and going, wow, that's a really radical statement, but what you don't see is the scriptures up behind that statement that give evidence for that statement. So... Uh, uh, we'll figure out something. We'll figure out how to get those to those who are downloading podcasts. But just to say for all of you, uh, you're getting a 40-minute message in a 20 minutes uh, because we're doing the scriptures on the screen and speaking at the same time. And I know that you guys can handle it. I think you're up to it. So, uh, But the scriptures that we're going to be presenting today point to the existence of an enemy who opposes God and mankind. But he's different, very different, from the pictures from childhood cartoons of some comedic figure from uh, escaping from a Halloween party. And uh, really, uh, some of those uh, images of, uh, you know, a guy in a red suit and horns and a little pointed tail and a pitchfork, uh, that was stuff that really um, church people made up back in the early church and then later in the 1400s and 1500s. Uh, they thought it was a way to make fun of Satan uh, because... Uh, they believed and, and assumed from certain scriptures that Satan uh, fell from heaven because of his pride. And so they thought the best way to get at him was to poke at him, to uh, poke at his pride. And so that's where some of those toyish, cartoonish figures came from. Actually, it came from church people. But it's very interesting how it's been twisted now. And uh, people think that's an a accurate picture of, of the enemy. And really, it's just a silly cartoon. Uh, and really, the, the real picture of the enemy is nothing like the horned fellow in a red suit and a, holding a trident in his hand. In fact, his real portrait is very much more serious and a little more frightening. The name of the chief of our enemy is called Satan. That's his name. His name means adversary. And he is hostile towards everything that is good. Other names and descriptive de designations for him are also found in the scriptures. He is known as the devil. The accuser of the brethren. He's called Beelzebub, the prince of demons. He's known as the deceiver of the whole world. He is the great dragon, the evil one. He's also called the father of lies. He's called the god, with a little g, of this world. He's called the old serpent. He's called the prince of this world and the prince of the powers of the air. He's known as the tempter. The most chilling of his names to me is one that describes him masquerading as an angel of light. Acknowledging that he has a clever ability to manifest himself under the appearance of good 
while actually being quite evil. These names describe our chief adversary and what he does. Now, why, why would some people not want to talk about the existence of a being like this? Maybe it's fear. Maybe, maybe it's skepticism. Or could be, maybe it's even a ploy of the enemy himself to keep us ignorant, fearful, and unaware of his schemes. But why, why would a pastor or a teacher or a preacher want to talk about this? Well, here's why I want to talk about this. So that we don't live in fear. That we don't live in ignorance. And that we're not unaware of the schemes that are unfolded against God's kingdom and God's people. I also really truly believe that, that in the New Testament we see that a lot of times that we are told that uh, those who put their trust in Christ are saved. That is not a word that was made up by Baptists. That was a word made up by Jesus and the apostles. It's used over and over in the scriptures. And it's not a, it's not a church word. It's, it's a biblical word. And what you've got to ask yourself is, not what am I just saved to, saved to God, saved to heaven, saved for salvation, but what am I saved from? And the series that we've been talking on uh, last week and the coming weeks is what no one talks about, is really talking about the things that we're saved from. And I, I believe that when we talk about the things that we're saved from, what that results in is us looking to Christ and going, wow, your grace really is good. What you've done for me, your forgiveness and your mercy is fantastic. And it leads to more praise to Christ and what he's done for us. And so that's, that's my hope and talking about these things and discussing these things. But today, I really hope that in talking about our enemy, I don't want to bring glory to him. I want to bring glory to Christ. But I want us to make us aware so that we're not caught by his deceptions because that is one of his greatest tools is deceiving people. And I simply don't want you to be deceived or defeated. So, let me tell you a little more about what is revealed in the scriptures about this enemy and his workers and how we don't need to fear him because of who the Lord is and what he's done for us. Before I go on, I need to ask you a question. And the question is this. What is evil? What is evil? Not, not how did evil come to be, not where is evil or when it is, just what is evil? This is important because some people think that because evil exists, God cannot be all-powerful and good. I mean, why would an all-powerful and good God allow evil? It's a good question. But to answer it, we first need to define what evil is. So let me help you define it. Evil is the twisting and distorting of what is good. It's spoiled goodness. For example... Uh, someone in real life who uh, someone in real life doesn't like badness just for badness sake. You can like goodness for goodness sake, but, but you can't really like badness for badness sake. And here's what I mean by that. Uh, suppose someone like a, um, like a sadist, uh, a person who has a perversion which makes cruelty a cause of sensual pleasure, or they're simply cruel for the sake of what they'll get out of it, money power or safety, right? You would think that person loves badness for badness sake, but not really. 
You see, pleasure, power, and money, and safety, they're all good things. The badness consists in pursuing them by the wrong methods, or in the wrong way, or too much. And now, I'm not saying that, that this isn't wicked, but I'm just saying that evil and wickedness are the pursuit of good in some wrong way. Evil is spoiled goodness. So the idea that some of us have been presented with, the idea of evil and good existing eternally and independently with equal footing just doesn't make sense. Some of you have have maybe, and I I didn't get Brian to help me with a nice graphic. I just drew this this morning. Some of you have seen this symbol before. Everybody see that? It's uh, it's supposed to be the Tao. Oh, you did it for me. Thanks. All right. But you see, uh, one... For maybe you're not familiar with it, those it's, it's supposed to be the balance of good and evil, saying that there is a balance, and that and and again, some people wouldn't call it good and evil; they'd have some other names for it. But anyway, we'll, we'll I'll use that. I'll say good and evil. Uh, the the darkness re- representing evil, the light representing the the goodness, and that they're there together in balance. But that really isn't a correct picture, and really, it doesn't make sense. It can't make sense because. If we take our definition of what evil is, evil is what is good, something that is, is the twisting of good. It, see, for the bad power to be bad, he has to have good things to want and then pursue them in the wrong way. The bad power must have impulses that were originally good in order to pervert them. If, if he's bad, he cannot supply himself with either good things to desire or with good impulses to pervert. He has to get both from the good power. And if that's the case, then the bad power is actually dependent upon the good. And therefore, he's not greater or equal. In fact, he's not independent. He is part of the good, po- good power's world. To even exist with intelligence and will, which are both good things, he must get these from the good power. To even be bad he must borrow or steal from his opponent. He was either made by the good power or by some power above them both. And you see, this is the case that we find in the Bible and this explanation for evil in this world. Now, some folks would would call this dualism. And like dualism, Christianity does say that there is a dark power behind death, disease, and sin. But unlike dualism, the difference is that Christianity explains that this dark power was created by God and was good when he created it, but then somehow it went wrong. The Bible doesn't tell too much of Satan's origin, but it does explain that he once was an angel who became quite impressed with himself, and then he led an angel rebellion. He then came to be referred to as Satan, meaning adversary. And one-third of the angels in heaven followed him in his rebellion, becoming what the Bible calls demons. Demons are fallen angels. Now, to maybe understand a bit of what angels or demons are capable of, I just want to give you a brief theology from the Scriptures about what what it says about angels. All right? The New Testament speaks of angels more than 165 times. 
The Old Testament speaks of angels over a hundred times. It's believed that angels were created prior to the creation of the earth. The holy angels live in heaven and are personal beings with minds that can think, emotions, and wills. Angels are incorporeal, or meaning they have no bodily form, and invisible. And we are generally unaware of their activities around us. But angels can take on human appearances when their task calls for it, such as the time when they showed up with Abraham and rescued Lot from Sodom. There are, they are localized beings, meaning that they can't be everywhere at once. They have to move from one place to another. Angels are described as powerful, mighty, and obedient to God, and set apart to do His bidding. Angels are created, but once they are created, they're immortal. They will not cease to exist. The angels are innumerable. Though angels are more powerful than humans, they are set apart to be servants of God and, to be, and servants to the heirs of salvation, meaning you, Christ followers. There's record in the Bible of them serving by delivering answers by prayer, to prayer, uh, bringing announcements and warnings, serving people by providing protection and deliverance. There's even implications that they help people or care for believers at the moment of death. Some believe that Jesus implied that every Christian has a guardian angel. It's from when he spoke of uh, the little children and said, uh, don't hinder them because the faces of their angels and the their, the pronoun referring to the children, the children's angels see the face of God. That's where the idea of guardian angel came from. It's also found in Acts where some people assume that they saw Peter's angel. Angels are organized by rank, including thrones, powers, rulers, authorities, and dominions. But the details about these things are not really revealed to us. We know that they exist, but we don't know how they work, really. Among unbelievers, the angels restrain wickedness, as in the case with Sodom and Gomorrah. They announce and execute God's judgments, as with the Herod that denied God. The holy angels of God, according to the scriptures, are doing quite a bit. And it's very comforting to hear about these sorts of angels. But you have to think that there are fallen angels that probably have the same capabilities as these angels that are the holy angels that serve and do God's bidding. And these angels, fallen angels, these demons, are busy fulfilling Satan's mission, which Jesus said is ultimately to steal kill and destroy that's the end result Satan and other fallen angels that follow him are described by Jesus as a kingdom that stands in opposition to his kingdom the scriptures say that Satan is filled with fury because he knows that his time is short and that he is making war against mankind and especially those who obey God and hold to the testimony of Jesus so why is Satan so furious at God and at you and me? Why is that? Well, let's take a look back at some of these scriptures again. 
The opposition began in heaven, as I said earlier, and was defeated by the Lord's holy angels. And the rebel angels lost their place in heaven and were hurled down to earth. They were defeated. There's also a knowledge that his time is short. That phrase means real punishment is coming in a place prepared for Satan and his fallen angels, which Jesus described as the lake of fire. So, what is Satan and his workers aware of? One, they've been defeated once, and there's coming punishment. Now, Satan isn't all-knowing, but by deduction, he somehow figures out that God is up to something with these humans that he's put on earth. Somehow, these humans are made to give glory to God. Satan knows he can't directly oppose God. No, he'll just lose. So he opposes man. He supposes that he can separate man from God by disobedience, just like he was separated by God from his disobedience. So, we know the story of Adam and Eve. We talked about sin last week. Sin enters the world. Satan thinks he's got us. He thinks he's got us in a headlock. And then the Son of God comes. Satan can't figure out what's going on with this. Christ in the flesh. And, and, this, and there's this plan that God is unfolding through him. A plan that was conceived before time. And just when Satan thinks he's won a victory at the cross, Jesus is crucified. He realizes it a little too late that he's been defeated again. That the cross really meant victory. Victory for mankind. And that we've been rescued. So defeat number two happens for our enemy. See, God has made His way through the cross and resurrection to extend grace, to end the grip of sin, and diminish even more the limited power Satan had. Satan and his co-workers are ever seeking to defeat the divine plans of grace toward mankind. He knows that, that this is God's big plan and that God has arranged so much to redeem mankind. He's put everything into it. And so Satan and his crew, though limited in their power after the cross, they still use deception. They still use lying. They still use accusing to bring as many people along with them to their doomed fate in the lake of fire. Satan thinks that this is the best way to oppose God in this war that he knows he's going to lose. How do you win a losing battle? You try to take down as many with you as you can. And that's his big scheme. That's what Satan is doing. That's his goal. So do we need to fear Satan and his demons? No, we don't. Though most mentions in the New Testament of demons have to do with possession of humans, all examples in Scripture also show that the demons feared Jesus and they were subject to his authority. Though demons are real and powerful, there is no reason to believe that they can ever possess a Christ follower. For a true Christ follower is indwelt by the Holy Spirit, and His presence guarantees liberty from demonic possession. You are bought with the blood of Christ. You are God's possession, and He possesses you by His Holy Spirit. So the enemy trying to do anything or mess with you is actually trespassing. And the Lord doesn't take kindly to trespassers, especially when they're trespassing against you, His prized possessions. So, does that mean a Christ follower can relax? No. We're told the exact opposite in the Scriptures. Satan and his fallen angels can still tempt 
still harass and accuse to keep you cowed down, unproductive and bearing fruit, to keep you from revealing Christ in your everyday life, and most of all, to keep you from administrating grace to others in God's name. You see, we're not to be afraid, but we are to be alert of what the enemy is doing. We're to be aware of the devil's schemes and not be taken in by them. You see, deception is still a key tool of the enemy. 1 Timothy 4.1, uh, I, I didn't give this to Brian, but uh, it says this, the Spirit makes it clear that as time goes on, some are going to give up on the faith and chase after demonic illusions put forth by professional liars. These liars have lied so well and for so long that they've lost their capacity for truth. This is a paraphrased version. More literal versions say that there will be doctrines taught by demons and people will be taken in by it through their teachers. This paraphrase just explains how doctrines by demons, false ideas will be taught through people who are good at lying. And I want to warn you, as Christ followers, those who, who love the Lord and those here who, who maybe have not put your faith in Christ, there are people out there who are liars. And the enemy loves to use them to deceive people. And a lot what they do is the same tool that Satan has used. He takes the word of God, which is good, and he twists it. Twists it just ever so slightly into something evil and something wrong, something that's not true. I'll give you an example. Um, our faith is based on what we know of God. Uh, Hebrews 11.6 says that... Uh, that, know, that we come to God, and we can come to God knowing that He exists and that He is a rewarder of those who seek Him. So I, I, I believe that. I believe that I am seeking after the Lord and that He rewards those who seek Him. And He will reward me for seeking Him. Now, here's what the enemy likes to do, or someone who lies for the enemy likes to do. Say something like this. Well, shoot, you know, that's not very altruistic. I mean, that's kind of selfish, isn't it? I mean, seeking God for reward? Shouldn't you really seek God for just seeking God's sake? Well, psh, it starts there with that little thought. Then he takes that thought, and he goes on and says, well, maybe God doesn't reward. Throws in a little discouragement. Well, what's the use of seeking God anyway? It's not really any reward. There's no punishments. It's just... What's the point? And then you start floundering and wandering, being ineffective, unproductive, not bearing fruit, not revealing Christ in your everyday life, not administering the grace of God to others. That's the way the enemy likes to work. He'll do it with believers, and he'll try to do it with non-believers too, to get them to, well, they'll never enter the kingdom. I want to warn you, there are folks out there, and most of the warnings in Scripture about false teaching and deception and lies. Most of the warnings in Scripture say that it will arise among the church and among believers. And you know it as well as I. There's some crazy things. All you have to do is look it up on YouTube. Look up anything, and you'll find stuff out there that is so far from what God's Word says. And this is why people like me and other churches, whether they're Protestant or Catholic or whatever and in between, will say, Read God's Word. Look at it. Know what it says. Because there are people that are twisting it, trying to take from it, distort it. And it's dangerous. 
Don't be deceived. We are told to stand firm in our faith and be men of courage. Be strong and doing everything in love. How do you stand firm in your faith? Faith is what we know of God and then acting upon it. What do you know of God? Is what you know of God just what somebody told you and you just took it for granted, believed it? Is what you know of God something that was thrown at you from someone that can be trusted? Someone that is a true representative of an ambassador of Christ. Test what you know of God and see if it does match the word of God. The way to be strong in your faith and unafraid is to be firm in what you know to be true about God. And here's what we can know is revealed to us by God himself through scripture. Though Satan likes to style himself as being equal and independent, an independent rival of God Almighty, he is not, he never has been, and never will be. God is self-existing. He was not created. Satan is a created being. God is greater. The enemy is less. God is omnipotent. He is all-powerful with no part of creation outside of his control. Satan is not. In fact, he is restricted and limited in his power. God is greater. The enemy is less. Satan, God is omnipresent. Meaning he is fully present in every place, everywhere. Satan is not. He is limited in space and time and cannot be in more than one place at one time. God is greater. The enemy is less. God is omniscient. He is all-knowing. He never learns anything new because He already knows all that's in the past, in the present, and in the future. Satan is finite, and he doesn't know all. He doesn't know all that is going to happen. God is greater. The enemy is less. God is good. There is no hidden shadow side to him. He is altogether good and consistently good always. He is the source of good. He acts according to his character, which is eternally unchangeable and intrinsically good. The enemy, Satan, is evil and is about doing evil. God is greater. The enemy is less. God is good. And that's one thing, if, if you guys would just hang on to that. I, you know, it, it's, it's been a prayer for little children for ages. God is great. God is good. Why do people want to teach their children that? Because it is foundational, folks. I know that there's folks here and there's others that I run into that struggle with this. Is God really good? I want to tell you, yes, He is good. That you cannot doubt that any longer. You have to come to terms with that and be settled in your mind that God is good and never waver from that again. You've got to decide that. I know for some of you that the question we began with is still with you. Why would an all-powerful, good God allow evil to exist? Because we do see from Scripture that He has power over the enemy, but He allows him still to exist. Why? Why would He do that? We don't have a direct answer. 
We don't have a direct answer. We can take educated guesses. We can find things in Scripture and imply from them. But the one thing that you can know, if you've set on your mind that God is good, that you can trust that God is good, and then we must, then you can know and trust that God has good reason to allow it. If He is good and altogether good and will be eternally and unchangeable good, He has good reason to allow the enemy to exist. I know that this is kind of hard. It's hard to, to accept this if you've experienced evil like, like Job experienced in the Bible. Great hardships. Now we can take guesses at why God has allowed Satan to work evil. Guesses like human freedom and responsibility. God didn't want us to be little Autobots. He wanted us to be free. That would be a good, logical, educated guess implied from the Scriptures that God, why He allowed good and why He allowed evil to exist. Or maybe that the creation of a stable cause and effect universe is necessary for meaningful action. That for us to have any kind of meaning in life, there had to be a choice. There had to be good and there had to be evil. Those are good educated guesses. But again, we don't have a direct answer from God on this. He didn't answer Job's question either when he asked him. Instead, Job just surrendered. He said, okay, I'm going to retract my question. I know you're there. I believe that you're God and you're good and I will worship you and follow you all my days. So, I want to tell you though, I want to tell you from all accounts of Scripture, by all accounts of faith, and by all accounts of what I've experienced in my little bit of life that I've lived, and what I've experienced of good and evil, that I believe God is good. He is good. And I want you to strengthen your faith and know that He is good. And know that He is greater and the enemy is less. And as the Apostle John wrote and said, He who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. Meaning that Christ in you is greater than the enemy, Satan, who is in the world. And you don't need to be afraid because Christ has overcome the world. The other thing that you can know, and also what the Apostle John wrote in the book of Revelation, he said that, that the saints overcame the enemy by, their, by the blood of the Lamb and, the tes- and their testimony. By the blood of the Lamb and the testimony. The blood of the Lamb, the cross, what was shed there. That's how you overcome the enemy. By your testimony. You know what your testimony is? I can sum it up. I can sum up everyone's testimony right here in ten words. And there are ten words you can learn to say. uh, And they're very good. Very good words to know. They're this. I was wrong. I'm sorry. Please forgive me. I love you. That's my testimony before God. I was wrong. I'm sorry, God. Please forgive me. I love you. Those are great words to say to the Lord. They're great words to say, learn to say to your spouse. It can save a relationship. And it's a great thing to learn to say with your friends. But as we go into a time of communion, what I would like to say to you, though, especially those of you who maybe have not acknowledged God the Father and Jesus the Son. I'd like you to know that that the Scriptures challenge you to come and see that the Lord is good. The psalmist writes and says, taste and see that the Lord is good. 
Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. And I want to challenge you to taste and see that the Lord is good. As we take communion today, and we take a piece of that wafer bread, and we dip it into the cup, the juice that represents Christ's blood, and you taste that in your mouth. Think of what it means to taste of God's goodness. In a sense that you're tasting that, and tasting His forgiveness and His grace that it brings to the cross. So today, as we, uh, Nate and the band sings this song, anytime that you're ready, I encourage you to go and uh, take communion. Parents, I encourage you to bring your children, teach them what it means, and if they're ready, allow them to to take that communion with you. But just remember as we we go to the cross and, and communion, remember that Christ has overcome that he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world.